Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. And on this episode, we're talking about how to make a modern elder in the workplace. The big shift that I think is happening is that as power is cascading to young people faster than ever before in business, there's no doubt because of our increasing reliance on digital intelligence or what I call DQ, we are expecting these young digital leaders to miraculously embody the relationship wisdoms we elders have had decades to learn. I think that's the opportunity. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. You know, I got to tell you something. I was going to interview this guy, get the book, and I was like, I don't know if it's going to be a good interview. We'll see, you know. And then I met him. He walks in the studio and he lights up a room. And you're going to hear that, that we have this amazing connection. His name is Chip Conley. He's written a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Why do you care about this? You care about this because this is a guy who really reinvented himself and created a, a second career. He had a very successful first one because he owned a chain of boutique hotels. And then he ends up working at Airbnb. And what he learned is really fascinating, which is how the aging workforce can actually make a huge difference, not only for these smaller startup companies that become big, like Airbnb, but in every organization. So I am lucky enough to present to you Chip Conley here on the Better Off Podcast. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Chip Conley, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you're here. Oh, Jill, it's a pleasure. Thank you. It feels like a long-lost brother of mine from the West Coast. Has from the just, West Side, maybe. From, yeah, Fred, <laughs> just like you've parachuted into town, Thank my you. Gentile older brother. <laughs> uh, you've just written a book called Wisdom at At Symbol Work. Yes. You got it. You got wisdom at work with the at symbol saying, hey, I think there's a technology thing. Here. I think there may be the making of a modern elder. Uh, Chip, you also had a forward by Airbnb's Brian Chesky, which is kind of cool because he's a gazillionaire. But you're a gazillionaire and you have a I'm whole not, career that predated him. No, what do you mean? I, I'm not even close. I'm, I'm, you Let's know. start at the very beginning. Okay. As Julie Andrews said okay. in The Sound of Music. Oh, should we, should we sing we do some that? songs? Let's, Let's start at, at the, the very beginning. beginning. Okay. Now, uh, when we begin the program, we say, uh, what was your best financial or career decision you've ever made? I think the best financial or career decision ever I ever made was at age 26, on my 26th birthday, finishing a business plan to start a boutique hotel company. Um, I was a couple, two and a half years out of Stanford Business School, and I was going to go t- start a company and pay myself $2,000 a month to run this company I was going to create, and it was at Bottom Motel in the center of San Francisco. It didn't make any sense. No one supported this idea, um, but ultimately, it was a company that I grew into Joie de Vivre Hospitality, which became the second largest boutique hotel company in the U.S. And I think what it taught me is that pursue your calling, don't just have a job. You know, were you like some rich kid who could afford that? No, I'm. Uh, I went to Snoop Dogg's high school, so I'm from inner city uh, Long Beach. Um, I'm not from. I'm not from a poor family, but I'm from a middle class family, and from a family that. Didn't you know? My dad maybe gave a little bit of investment, but I had to go out and raise money. But I didn't. I didn't raise a lot of money. The first hotel was a motel, 1950s motel, uh, pay by the hour. By the way, Vinny and his girls were our biggest corporate account. I love that. Yeah, 
basically I bought it in bankruptcy. It was almost nothing, and I turned it into something. That how did you know what you were doing? Like, how did you get into the hotel or the hospitality industry at large? Well, you know what? I think it's some of it's learned, and some of it's like just like in my blood. I was 12 years old when I first created a a little restaurant in my parents' dining room, and it lasted three days. But I, the fact that at age 12 that I'm creating a restaurant suggests that there's something in my blood that liked to be a host. And I love making people happy. So that's actually the name of my company was called Joie de Vivre Hospitality. West Coast Company, 52 boutique hotels, each with its own name. But Joie de Vivre means joy of life. And that's really sort of what I've always tried to celebrate. Tell the story about how you decided to sell the group. Well, I thought I'd be doing it till I was 80 or 90 years old, truly. And then I had a flatline experience um, at age 47. I had a broken ankle from playing baseball, playing, going to a bachelor party for Gavin Newsom, who will be the soon soon to be the governor of California. What name dropping? I I'm that. sorry. <laughs> I was he was my first mentee. I was his mentor, so it's a very interesting relationship. Oh, that's with interesting. Him. Yeah. So long story short, is went to that uh, broke my ankle playing baseball, got a bacterial infection in my leg, was on a strong antibiotic, had a flatline experience at the end of a speech in St. Louis. And that flatline experience where they had to paddle me back, you know, I don't mean a paddle to the rear end. I mean, paddles with the electricity to your heart to bring me back to life at age 47 made me ask the question, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? And I actually realized at that point, after 22 years of being CEO of this company I founded with 3,500 employees, I don't want to do this anymore. Why do you think you didn't want to do it anymore? Um... You know, I started the company at age 26 to be creative and have freedom. And by the time it had grown to that size company, I didn't feel much creativity or freedom anymore. I I really felt like my soul had been sucked out of me. And I had, you know, sort of jumped on the treadmill that, you know, I, I frankly started this company because I wanted to be different. And all of a sudden now I'm just like anybody else trying to make, you know, the numbers work. And I wanted to do something creative again. And so you sold it and you got a pile of cash. I did okay. I did. I sold it in 2010 to John Pritzker's father started Hyatt. It was the bottom of the recession. So it was not a great time to sell a hotel company. But I didn't care. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I made enough to be able to do fine the rest of my life, but not, I didn't, I was, you didn't what, have dumb money. I was, I didn't have any dumb money. No, I still owned the real estate of many of the hotels. So I just sold the, the management company and the brand of Joie de Vivre. So Wait a minute. Do you still own that? I still own a lot. Yeah. Oh, come on. You, that's, that's like, now I'm doing out. okay. Now yeah, I'm doing okay. Yeah, yeah. You left that out. Do you think about selling out? Uh, that underlying interest in the real estate. I, I had when I when I sold the company, I had uh, tw- ownership in twenty hotels, and I, I now have only nine. And that's not because I, you know, joined the, the dark side with Airbnb, and I don't like hotels anymore. I still love hotels, uh, but I um, just felt over time that I had partners who wanted to sell, and so, but I still own nine hotels while also being, you know, an Airbnb leader. Let's talk a little bit about the Airbnb yes. part of this, and then we'll get into your book. So. I have a separate book here. I love Lee. Okay, lovely. Also, friend of the pod, friend of the show. Yep. In her Airbnb story, here she describes you. Uh-oh. So, Brian Chesky read your book, Peak, yes. How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. And the book's author, I'm reading now, quoting from Lee Gallagher's book, The Airbnb Story. And, and listeners, you remember we had Lee on the show a few different times. The book's author was Chip Conley, the founder of the Joie de Vivre boutique hotel chain, which he started in San Francisco in 1987. Over time, Conley himself had become something of a guru. Oh. I love that. In Peak, he explained That's just how he, because I'm bald. Oh, stop now. Okay. You know, in the, that book, you basically applied 
the teachings of psychologist Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the pyramid of physical and psychological needs humans must have met in order to achieve their full potential with food and water at the bottom and self-actualization at the top to corporate and individual transformation. Now, self-actualization at the top sounds a tiny bit oonga boonga, San Francisco Bay Area crap to me. Can you explain it? Abraham Maslow was a good good Jewish boy um, who spent some time in New York uh, teaching. created this in the the mid-20th century. And the premise was being all you can be. You know, that that was a U.S. Army line in an ad campaign that they got from Maslow. Hmm. Maslow said self-actualization is basically being all you can be. And so, um, yeah, it does sound a little bit, uh, you know, new age. But the bottom line is anybody in their work and in their life would like to be all they can be, you know, if assuming that they are engaged with life. And so the premise of that book, Peak, was really to help people to understand how to create an organization that can have a collection of individuals being all they can be. Do you think that in corporate America that we it seems to me, at least, I you know, I interview tons of these CEOs and C-suite people and on the record and off the record. It seems like we've kind of gotten away from that. I mean, they say be all you can be, but they really mean be all you can be so we can maximize profits. Well, I don't think that's yeah, that's been the case forever. Right. Um, I do think that there's a shift that's slightly positive that's moving. You know, in 2007, the iPhone was created. And since that time, we cannot look at work-life balance as even a, st- a phrase that makes any sense at all. Because when you have an iPhone or you have everything on a laptop and you're you're basically blending your work and your life, I think what companies now need to do is create a sense of purpose so that employees feel engaged to be there. Otherwise, it's not like you can sort of leave your life at the door when you walk into the office. You know, your, your work is at nighttime and on weekends. And so I think more and more companies actually have to live up to something that's beyond just profit. There's got to be a purpose there in order to be a magnet for great talent. It's interesting. So then, you know, because I think that that is especially true when you think of younger workers. Mm-hmm. But you've sort of learned and, and came but to I'm this. I'm an older as, I was going to say, you came <laughs> to this in your 50s after you have, a you know, whatever, near yeah. 50 uh, yeah. uh, with this terrible health crisis and then asking yourself, what is it that I really want? And then it seems to me from reading this book and your book at that point, the folks at Airbnb, Chesky basically saying, you come work with me. Yeah. I was 52 years old. I'd sold um, my company a couple years earlier and I was, you know, there's a great Robert De Niro quote uh, in his, in the movie, The Intern. He says, musicians don't retire. They quit when there's no more music left inside of them. So I was 52. I had music inside of me. I just wasn't sure who to share it with. Brian came to me at just the right time. I didn't really know what Airbnb was. I was going to say, so you didn't, you weren't following that as someone in no. the industry. I'm in San Francisco. I Airbnb is based in San Francisco. I thought Airbnb was a subsidiary of couchsurfing. I didn't really understand it. I had never heard of the phrase the sharing economy five and a half years ago. I did not have an Uber or Lyft app on my phone. All of that was true, but I was sort of curious. And so I sat down for coffee with Brian and I was really impressed by how much of a growth mindset he had. He was just so curious himself. And he said, let's go democratize hospitality together. And I said, well, that sounds pretty good. And so you started with, I think, eight hours a week, and then it was 15 hours a week. What's yeah. your role there? What, did, what so, were you called when you brought in? When I came in, it was supposed to be a part-time role. It became full-time almost overnight and 70 hours a week quite quickly. 
And I was called the head of global hospitality and strategy. And for four years was in that role. But I was also Brian's mentor. I mean, I was really his in-house mentor. But what I started to realize, and this gets to my book, is that after the first week, I realized I have all of this accumulated knowledge, but a lot of it's not that relevant. You know, it doesn't really matter in the home sharing world how many rooms a maid cleans in an eight-hour shift. But they brought me in for my knowledge, but actually what I started to offer was, I guess what I would say is my well-earned wisdom. And a lot of that was around emotional intelligence and leadership skills. You mentioned something that's kind of interesting to me. I'm a numbers person. I love this stuff. The median age of employees in the United States is 42. That number is more than a decade younger among tech titans. And a Harvard Business Review study showed the average age of founders of unicorns, that's those yeah. companies with more than a billion dollar in valuation, is 31. Yeah. And you say the acceleration of innovation made the elder less relevant. Yeah. I mean, I th let's be clear. The, I think the elder became less relevant when we went from the agricultural age to the industrial age because brawn became the big thing uh, in the industrial age. And now brain has become the big thing in the techno technological age. And, you know, brawn and brain is not why we necessarily uh, look to our elders. But the big shift that I think is happening is that as power is cascading to young people faster than ever before in business, there's no doubt because of our increasing reliance on digital intelligence or what I call DQ, mm -hmm. um, we are expecting these young digital leaders to miraculously embody the relationship wisdoms we elders have had decades to learn. I think that's the opportunity is let's pair these brilliant technologists with people who have a few extra decades of experience, judgment, and emotional intelligence to actually create a great company. If Travis at Uber had done that, he still might have his job. But he, did he try to do it? <clears throat> and uh, by, let's say, Ariana was like his sleep whisperer or something. And maybe she was, maybe he's a terrible case study anyway. He probably is. Right? But I think they do sense they need that guidance. Yeah. But what's the difference between someone who's actually going to be open yeah. to that and not? Well, I think, first of all, for those of us who are in midlife, and, and, and let's all start by saying midlife, I think, has actually changed. Changed. It used to be 45 to 65. Today, I think it's 35 to 75 because people feel irrelevant earlier because there are more people in this midlife marathon and feeling a little confused by it. I think the key is to start start saying which habitats are going to be open to your wisdom. And uh, so one of the things that I had lucky going for that was fortunate for me was I was in an industry hospitality and these the founders of Airbnb had started in that field but had nobody in the company with a hospitality background. So start by asking, is there a, a field or an industry? You may be in healthcare and you have some people who want to disrupt healthcare and they've got some great technology, but they really don't understand how the industry works or they don't have the contacts. They don't have a Rolodex. The, that know-how and that know-who, the combination of those two together is something you have going for you, especially if it's in an industry where people are learning the industry along the way. So I think that was helpful. I think also what was helpful is it was clear that Brian and his co-founders really wanted to learn from me. Mm. Why? Because they asked me a lot of questions. Rather than sort of having me in, in the room and then on occasion just saying, okay, let's trot ship out and talk about hospitality. They started looking at me. You know, three weeks into it, Brian said, you're in, in charge of strategy now. So I was supposed to be just in charge of hospitality. And three weeks into it, I'm now in charge of strategy for the company, which was not something I asked for. But he clearly saw that I had a strategic mind. So that was great. So, but I, but let me just say, I had, 
you know, the book Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, is full of examples, 150 examples beyond me. I am an unusual case in the sense that the founders of this company asked me to join them. That doesn't happen a lot for people in their 50s. I think that there's something interesting you point out. Many people face their modern elder years with a sense of anxiety. I think that sometimes people stay stuck in a place where they feel like they're becoming obsolete and kind of like running out the clock yeah. and don't know how to make a move. And and I find that to be a that's pretty consistent. It's really mo- consistent. We have um, we started something called the Modern Elder Academy, which is a social enterprise. So it's it, you know, we have half the people coming on scholarship where people come to a campus in, in on, on a beachfront in Baja, which is in Mexico. I'm in. Yes. And they come and they learn about how to evolve into a modern elder. Or number one, you have to evolve. And this is the hardest step because many of us. You know, it would have been very hard for me, if I think back on it, to be 52 years old. I've run my own company, you know, for 24 years, and now I'm actually reporting to someone who's 21 years younger than me. Mm. Ouch. 40% of us in the workplace have a a boss younger than us, and that's actually only growing as a phenomenon. So if I didn't evolve and say, okay, I'm no longer the sage on the stage, you know, the leader of the company, but I'm the guide on the side. I'm the person who's helping this guy, Brian, be successful. And I had to, I had to right size my ego. So that was one form of evolving I needed to do. And that idea of evolving is not just in your identity, but it's in what you know. Mm. And that gets you to the second lesson, which is to learn. So the first two lessons are evolve and learn, which are two things that frankly, people in midlife often feel like they don't want to do because it takes work. Right. And it's uncomfortable. The idea of uncertainty is something that grips us often as we get older. What are some things we can develop while we're still working to try to help us get to the next stage before that happens? So uncertainty is painful, but irrelevancy is worse. And so that's a good model. Uh, like yeah, that. it's not in the book. I just I came like up with that. it right here, right here. That's good. You and me, Jill. We're going on the road. Um, so the bottom line is, <laughs> I think that. If you do the math, let me just start by saying this. I'm 57 years old. I hung out with my dad, you know, in uh, scuba diving with him in rural Indonesia in May. My dad's 81 this month. Um, and my dad and I took one of those online tests where it says, how, lady, how long are you going to live to? Yeah. We both, it, both, for both of us, it said we're going to live to our, we're 98. So if I'm 57 now and I'm going to live till 98, you can do the math. I am 39 years into my adulthood. And I have 41 years of adulthood ahead of me. I am Mm. less than halfway through my adult part of my life. When you think that way, you realize, my gosh, I have a lot of time ahead of me, which means that you're maybe more willing to have a beginner's mind and be a little bit curious about things that you might say, yeah, let me try that out. I'm going to be a beginner. And the idea of being in midlife, you know, let's look back in childhood we had to learn how to walk, which means we had to fall down a few times. And we've had to do things in our life where we've had to get be not very good at it. Learning a language at 57 and learning Spanish and learning surfing last year, learning to surf. This is not the thing that people in their 50s do, but the process is great. It creates curiosity and curiosity is an elixir for having a life-affirming kind of experience. So long story short is once you realize that it's not over at age 50, you're open to maybe trying some things and looking awkward along the way, but having fun and being able to laugh at yourself. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Chip Conley in just a minute. But you know, you elders out there, you're listening, or you youngers, you youngers and you elders, it's so funny to hear people talk about managing 
organizations and being open to feedback and also being open to different ways of thinking about various issues in your life. And one of the things that we always talk about on this podcast is how you can be open to new ways to approach your financial life. And that's why I'm so delighted that our sponsor is Betterment, because Betterment is the smart way to manage your money. In fact, Betterment is the investing tool for those who refuse to settle for average investing. They also refuse to settle for whatever the status quo is. This is kind of what Chip Conley was talking about. We sit around our offices. We do things the same way year after year. And then someone comes into the organization and opens our eyes. That's kind of like what Betterment did in the investment landscape. Betterment's got cutting-edge technology combined with human expertise. You'll also have constant access to information and tools that allow you to track your progress toward your goals so you can always feel like a smart, savvy investor. Yes, all investing involves risk. We know that. But here's something cool. Better Off listeners can get up to one year managed free by visiting Betterment.com slash Better Off. That's Betterment.com slash Better Off. Okay, let's get back to our interview with Chip Conley. Can you explain this role that you have at Airbnb and, and, you know, as a modern elder, you say that you have to be an editor. Yeah. Explain what you mean by that. Well, there's a great book that Jonathan Rausch brought out recently called The Happiness Curve, and uh, it, it goes into great detail about the fact that, frankly, people get happier starting around 50. Uh, 40, your 40s are your worst decade across the world. Really? Yeah, it's Not consistent. Not for me. Was that for you? Uh, yeah, 40s. Well, was, I mean, except for that whole that, that flat line experience. That, 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 yeah, 40s were a tough decade for me. 50s have been a lot better. The reason for that is because we tend to accumulate up until about age 50. What does that mean? Well, you accumulate friends, you accumulate relationships, or you know, you, you might accumulate children and, and having kids. You accumulate roles and responsibilities and things you do for nonprofits. And by the time you get to your 40s, it's a mishmash of so many things mm. that you really don't feel like you know, you have much control or freedom in your life. And so you accumulate in the first half of your life, you edit in the second half of your life. And we see this a lot with people in their homes. They have a, you know, have a big home, then they become an empty nester, and then they downsize. That's an example of editing. The process of editing your life down to what's important to you, including who you want to spend time with and what you want to do, um, is a really valuable exercise because it means you start focusing on what makes you happy. If you're at work, how does being an editor play out? What wow. what happens for you in the workplace? It's a it's a few things. One truism about wisdom is it's not about a math equation where you're arithmetically adding things. It's about actually a division equation. You are actually distilling down what's most important. So wisdom is about actually an editing process. My process at Airbnb, and I've seen it with many, many other so-called modern elders in, in young companies, is that the, the person who's older is able to actually see what's important. One of the things that's true about our brains is as we get older, yes, our recall's not as good. The thing that's interesting about our, our as we age, we get four-wheel drive with our brain. Mm. There's all those studies that have shown that you are able to shift from left to right brain a lot more fluently when you get older. What does that mean? It means you get the gist of things and you're more of a systems or holistic thinker. In essence, you can see that the forest 
and not get too caught up in the trees. And that kind of thinking means that you're able to be able to edit what was the most important thing that came out of that meeting. Or what is it, in my case at Airbnb, when I joined, we had way, way too many initiatives. And it was like, let's get it down to just four. We're going to focus on four things. Exactly. So that kind of thinking is really valuable in the workplace. And it means, frankly, sometimes people lean into listening to you because when you actually say, I think we need to do fill in the blank, they're, they're realizing that you're thinking in a very holistic way. And it seems to me that because look, the boss bought into you, right, early on, that that tone from the top would filter down. Did you encounter any resistance within the ranks? Talk about that. Well, so I'm, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley. Airbnb is a tech company and everybody's metric driven. And, you know, I gave a talk at the TED conference eight years ago about what, you know, measuring what, what matters. Many things in life are hard to measure. But that doesn't mean that they're not valuable. And so one of the challenges I had at Airbnb on occasion is knowing that our host community, and I was in charge of all the hosts globally, knowing there's certain things we can do for them. My premise at Airbnb is, what are we doing for our hosts? We got then to the point of like, okay, how do you measure that loyalty? And I said, you measure the loyalty by people staying on the platform and continuing. Yes, we can ask them, are they happy with us? Are they satisfied, et cetera? All of that's true. But at the end of the day, Loyalty can be measured in terms of how they show up. And that's like at the end of the day, Airbnb continues to grow partly because of that. But, you know, I I will say that I did have to, you know, occasionally prove things with my numbers. When you spoke like that, did you get a sense of this kid doesn't is not getting what I'm saying? Well, I think the key I learned very long ago at Airbnb, five and a half years now that I've been there, uh, you've got to intern publicly and mentor privately. Mm, so, so what you just said is a really great example. If someone's not getting it in a meeting, the intent is not for me to school them in the meeting like their parent. The, the intent is for me in the meeting to actually be the most curious person in the room, which is also meaning at all, often I was the dumbest person in the room when it came to technology. But the fact that I could take that person aside and say, hey, let's go have coffees. Let's spend a half hour talking this through. And then in that half hour, be a little bit more persuasive. And it worked usually. I I love this. Intentionally building your reputation. I did highlight this. Here are some ways I intentionally evolved my identity so that I could make a difference at Airbnb. Almost always arriving on time for meetings. Yeah, that was a big one. There's a sense of respect that's paid when people show up on time for a meeting. It says, you know, I'm here and, and so I just, you know, I didn't have to tell people the rule. I just showed up with it. Responding expeditiously, especially to emails from hosts and guests. I yeah. love this because I feel like oh, you and God. I came of age at a time where, first of all, we would we first have, have an answering machine, yeah. right? And then you're like, oh, my God, there's something on my answering machine. And then email was something that we were very clear. Like you, I was in a client business, right? I manage money for people. I I was a financial planner. Not answering an email is tantamount to like throwing a dagger in my heart. I would never do that. It's such a sign of disrespect. And I I just want to be really clear. And it's so commonplace that my intent here is not to have you listeners feel like I'm telling you you're you're, you're a jerk. But I want to say that it's one of the ways you um, influence your reputation. Um, when you when you respond at all, it helps. When you respond quickly, it shows it's particularly important. And I learned this in the hotel business the hard way. Let's go to the end of the book where you debunk ageist stereotypes. Yeah. 
Poor performers and less engaged. Older workers have lower abilities, especially with technology, are less motivated, work more slowly, and are less productive than younger workers. So, Go. you know, there's some of that myth. And so this is the chapter right. where I actually debunk the myths. Some of that is true. But we're, older workers do move more slowly. And not I don't mean physically. I mean, they move more slowly with technology. They do. But that doesn't mean they actually move worse because actually the test what has what's been shown is older workers tend to actually make less mistakes. Hmm. So it takes longer for them to do things and they make less mistakes. So if you have a, a team of older workers together, it takes them longer to deliberate to come to a conclusion, but they usually come to a conclusion that they stick with. Whereas younger people are the exact opposite. They come to conclusions quickly and then they change them quickly. Um, and sometimes, you know, in doing work, they are not as diligent about getting it right. So long story short is this is part of the reason I think actually uh, age diverse teams is the future. I think there should be a new generational compact where we say God, we have five generations in the workplace at the same time for the first time. And there's so much we can learn from each other. So you put together a team that's of various ages makes a ton of sense. We've seen the ethnic and gender uh, diverse teams are more effective. Age diverse teams are as well. I agree with you that in watching teams perform yeah. or in going in and experiencing it myself. You know, I came to CBS News. I didn't know how to put a blog post up and I hitched my wagon to a 23 year old. I'm like, dude, Joe, <laughs> you're my friend. Yeah. You need financial advice. I need technology advice. We're going to have a conversation. You just described the future of work. That is mutual mentorship. So we've talked about mentorship, which is sort of old to young, and then reverse mentorship, which Jack Welch sort of uh, popularized at GE 20 years ago. That is from young to old. But mutual mentorship means, uh, you know, in the, the one that we had at Airbnb was millennial DQ, digital intelligence, for uh, boomer or Gen X EQ, emotional intelligence. So the idea that the world can get better because we have like a generational potluck, it's a new form of the sharing economy. Do you think that older generations are resistant to change? There's myths around that and some of it, sometimes it's accurate. But one of the things that's interesting, there's a study that I love from Zenger and Folkman that showed that women in particular, as they are in the workplace longer, get more confident. The more confident you are, the more willing you are to actually take feedback. And feedback is what helps you get better. So it becomes a virtuous loop um, where, especially for women, as they get older, they are more open to feedback because they're more confident of their abilities and then they get better through that feedback, which suggests that in fact, frankly, people get better with age as opposed to just shutting down and no longer wanting to actually get better. And so I think, I think it's particularly true for women. I think men sometimes are a little bit hard, have a harder time with feedback uh, for a variety of reasons. But I, I think, you know, this would suggest it debunks the idea that, um, you know, you get older and you're, you're not interested in changing. Chip, we started the show and I said, what was your best financial or career decision? And it was really taking a swing and becoming an entrepreneur and becoming the first step in the hospitality industry. What was the worst decision? The worst decision I've ever made, and I've made it a few times, is to go into partnership with people I'm not aligned with. Either I'm not aligned with them uh, on a moral level or on an ethical level, or I'm not aligned with them in terms of the business strategy. Um, th to think that actually the 
messiness of business and running the business is actually going to get us aligned it was just a mistake. So you knew up front you weren't aligned? Well, I've gotten better such that, yeah, I mean, in the early days, no, I had no idea I wasn't aligned. Right. And, and so you don't know that until you know it. And therefore you start learning, okay, here's the interview questions you ask an investor or someone you're going to go into partnership with. You know, like we need to interview people. And um, I do that now. And so I'm much more thoughtful about, you know, make, saying no to people when I don't think they're going to be a good match for me. Chip Conley, the book is Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Jill. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time to focus on you. After our interview segment, we do talk to you and we have our listener question of the week. This is when you get to ask me and Mark any question that's on your mind, financially speaking. So if it's anything that has to do with money, maybe it's insurance or maybe it's real estate or investing, uh, give us a holler. Here's how you get on the air. It's very difficult. Come on, pay attention. You send an email to askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's it. So easy. Send us a note. Let us know what's going on and we'll arrange to get you on the air. Isn't that cool? Love that. All right. That is what Cynthia did. She is calling from Illinois. Hello, Cynthia. What can I do for you? I have a question about a variable life policy that I have for my husband. We've had it for 24 years. It was issued in February of 1994. Mm. And I have been paying premiums each year since that time. Oh, gosh. There's no cash value left in the policy because he is 81 years old and the cost to insure him keeps increasing by the insurance company, even Mm. though we have made contributions over $100,000 at this point. What's the death benefit? The death benefit is $150,000. As long as he dies before 100. You know, (laughs) if he dies after 100, then... I don't get anything. Yeah, yeah, it's like a race against the clock. Man, this is a morbid conversation, but I like that you're laughing because you're just, you got a nice attitude about it. Cynthia, you said he's 81. How old are you? I'm 67. Oh, look at this, you spring chicken. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't feel like a spring chicken. Okay, so what's the premium on this policy? How much each year? $3,400 annually. Hmm. Okay. It's escalating because every year as he gets older, the insurance part of this rises. So Exactly. Okay. I mean, were you married at the time he got that policy in 1994? Oh, yes. We got married in 1972. Get out of here. Wait a minute. (laughs) I got to do some math right now. You guys got kids? 14 years apart. Yeah. (laughs) We have one daughter. Uh Uh-huh. She's 30 years old. And how's she doing? She's a she's an internal medicine doctor. Aha. Uh-huh. So does she think he's going to live till a hundred or what? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you never know about him. He's uh, in pretty good shape. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So yes. right now, um, are you working? And is he doing anything? Collecting Social Security stream of income? Give me like a, the rest of the financial picture here. Well, we're retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sold our company three years ago, um, and uh, we do have Social Security, and we live off of cash and uh, some uh, annuities. So if you look at your Social Security benefits together, how much Mm -hmm. do you guys um, draw down? Uh, About 
$4,400 a month. Okay. And that's not enough to cover your needs right now. Is that correct? No. No, no, no. Mm -mm. What do you think the needs are? How much more do you usually need on an annual basis? Well, uh, with with the annuities that we draw on each month, Mm -hmm. we get in the neighborhood uh, a little over $10,000 a month. And the annuities, meaning are you just pulling money out when you need it, or did you actually annuitize these contracts? We annuitized uh, the contracts Uh uh, several years before we sold our business. Okay. Did you create uh, an income stream for a period certain, or is it until um, the death of the survivor or his death? How did you peg the annuitization schedule? Until the uh, death of one of us. One and, of us. Uh, if, if, if he dies, then I get his money. If I die, then he gets the rest of it. I see. Um, and if there's anything left, then our daughter gets it. Okay. If you take the annuities out, so that's pretty mm-hmm. good, right? But how? Mm-hmm. what about your other assets that you have? Well, we have cash. Uh, that we draw on each month as well, and we own our home. We don't have any debt. Okay. How much cash? That's Uh Uh $650,000. So your concern is that what? That you don't want to keep paying the premium, or are you wondering, do you still need the insurance, or how do you you think about this? Do you think, well, if he were to die, right, like, let's just Mm -hmm. play this out. I'm sorry to say this to you since he's alive and well, it sounds like. If he were to die right now, you would continue to get the annuity payments, yes? Annuity, yes. And the and the money from our cash. Okay, so you'd and have the te- so you'd have the ten grand a month that would support you alone, and you'd have the six hundred fifty grand that's in cash. What's your concern? Is that if he were to die, you'd like to have that extra hundred and fifty? Essentially, no, I don't. I I'm thinking I don't have to give them this thirty four hundred dollars. Yeah, that's what money. I'm kind of thinking. I mean, here's the problem. I know that you absolutely feel like, damn. I paid in all these years. It seems stupid to stop now. But you said his health is good. His health is good. um, Your your asset level seems to me okay. Look, one reason that people buy life insurance and keep life insurance is that, for example, let's pretend that you had the annuities and that the annuity payment stopped at his death. Then you might need the life insurance, right? Right. But that's not the case. There's a few um, questions here. One is you can go back to the insurance company and say, all right, how much would it cost us if we reduce the death benefit? Because you might be able to make this a slightly smaller death benefit and it's affordable. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure that you actually need this policy. Sure, it would be nice. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I don't want to, like, turn my nose up at 150 grand. But, you know, (laughs) the the cost of this is is enough at least for me to say if you don't really need it and the cost is going to keep rising you know you're going to get to a point where it's not thirty four hundred dollars a year and you know if he lives five more years it's probably going to be forty five hundred dollars a year and then what am i paying this for because i'm paying for coverage i don't need simply because i've paid for it in the past so you know if you were feeling like something was imminent with him, if his health wasn't good, we'd, we'd keep it, right? But you're saying he's in good health. And I bet that on an actuarial basis, now that he's lived to 81, 
his Mm -hmm. likelihood of living longer is actually pretty good. So I I would say I'm I'm in your camp um, that you probably don't need this. I would say one other thing. If it were possible, I, I get that you're like living and you're happy and all that. If it would be possible to simply live on the Social Security plus the annuity and leave that cash alone as much as you can, just because you're really young. I mean, you, Cynthia, could live for 25 years pretty yes. easily. And so I don't necessarily want you to blow through all that cash so quickly. So I just want you to be aware of the fact that that lump sum has got to stay mostly intact for you. Again, I'm not saying you have to, like, stop living your life, but I would say just be a little careful because you've got a long life ahead of you. Well, right now we're just living off of the interest of that money. We It Good. basically sort of stays the way it is. Good. Perfect. And we also have a house that's completely paid for, mm-hmm. and if anything happened to him, um, we'd be selling, I would be selling that house, or he would be selling the house if anything happened to me, and moving closer to our daughter. Yep. So. All right. Well, good. I think for now, I'm in with you, and I feel good about this, and uh, I like the game plan. Can I ask you one other Sure. Uh, is that a good, a variable insurance? Is that something that someone should do insurance really concerns me and i you know i have house insurance car insurance health insurance all of those but that type of insurance is that something good to do just so i can help my daughter no (laughs) tell your daughter to call us but no don't okay absolutely not not necessary not necessary not necessary we can we can help her out separately though that's right all right take care bye-bye thanks for calling Thanks so much to our guest, Chip Conley. Go buy his book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Also want to thank our caller, Cynthia. Don't forget, we drop new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Radio.com, Stitcher, wherever. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our now-engaged executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.